Welcome back to the Ask Different Podcast. This is episode number 23, recorded February 11th, 2012. I'm Kyle Cronin. I'm Jason Salas. I'm Nathan Greenstein. And we are back. Just in time to get this episode out before the election ends. Indeed. Yes. The Ask Different 2012 moderator election. So good luck to all the candidates. We have very good crop running. Well, except Jason, you know, he's, what's the word? Questionable. No, I kid, of course. He, he, he'd, be, he'd be a pretty good moderator. Now, I realize that by the time this episode comes out, I, I think the election will probably end pretty much coincidental when, by the time this episode comes out. So, we can't really, you know, say anything to influence the election, but it's been a really, really interesting process. Um, I remember when I went through it, last year uh myself and nathan and actually jason went through it last year as well myself and nathan were elected and it was i think it's actually quite different this year what what do you guys think i think the difference is that we've got a lot more users who are at the point where they know enough about the site that they feel comfortable voting and also a lot more people who feel comfortable running for moderator yeah there's obviously there's the obvious answer that there's a lot more chance for participation because of the numerous traffic bumps and the overall average being raised up. And last year, I, if if we used chat before the election, I sure don't remember it. Not certainly not meaningfully. Uh, and now we have a, a staple of uh, ten to fifteen people, and that's just chat specifically. And the number of people that we can specifically point out as being high in the content of answers column and questions too, to their own extent has significantly risen there's a lot more fame to this election because it just in the sense that we actually know who people are now instead of just this ragtag group of people that look interesting yeah it's kind of um it's kind of changed the the dynamic of the questions uh the kinds of questions that you get in the town hall from being like so there's this user that's causing this problem how would you handle it to uh, it's hard to describe, but I think that the answer to that question is almost immaterial. It's almost insignificant to how how good a, qu- a person will be as a moderator. Um, for me, um, as an existing moderator that will be working with the new moderators, what I what I really hope that the new moderators will have is um, will value is that they will communicate with the existing moderators, myself and Nathan. And, and work with us both for, for resolving problems, but also I think for sort of charting the direction of the community, sort of setting the tone as to, you know, what we allow, what we don't allow, kinds of things are on topic versus off topic. You know, I realize that a lot of these things are discussed, you know, in a sort of democratic forum on, on our meta site, but very often it comes down to the moderation team implementing these policies and so it's something that we all kind of have to come to like an understanding on how we're actually going to handle specific cases of things. So I think that, I think that it's a job that anyone can learn uh, as long as, the, you know, they, they care about the site um, and they, um, you know, they're, they're, they're patient and they always sort of have that benefit of the doubt. Uh, but beyond, beyond those basic characteristics, the, um, the thing that I really am looking for is, is the, um, the willingness and, um, ability to communicate, um, regularly and, and often with uh, the existing moderators. And since we haven't really talked about it before, the election process is pretty much a staple of stack exchange. There's been, 
Uh, I'm sure there's been numerous ones for the big three, Stack Overflow, Server Fault, and Super User. Uh, but with the rise of the Area 51 system, there is an election immediately after graduation. And uh, as far as I'm aware, every single election there is, assuming there's always been at least three candidates, there are always three moderator positions filled annually. Uh, we recently lost Philip Reagan as an official moderator just due to uh, due to lack of participation, lack of visiting the site. And so this second election is going to add three more moderators, bringing us up to just five. But as, as I believe we've said before, that's probably more than sufficient for covering Ask Different adequately. Well, we should probably clarify that um, he decided to resign um, as opposed to, you know, he just didn't show up for a while. Um and you know it, it did take a long time for that to be processed by stack exchange so you know i don't want people to you know think that he just abandoned the site but yeah the um and, and i don't know necessarily if it's going to be if it's three candidates per year i think that the number of candidates is sort of set by the number of existing moderators versus the number of moderators that are expected to be needed uh, both immediately and over the the course of the next year and I think that probably if we had uh, Philip staying as as an existing moderator um, and active and all that stuff, uh, that we would probably only have two positions open as, as opposed to three. I was actually surprised to see that there were actually three additional positions being opened. Um, I kind of expected one to two um, just because, for the most part, Nathan and I have had no problem handling the moderation duties on the site for the past a uh, few months since since Philip uh, left, and, and before then it was even better because we, you know we had three people. So uh, I don't know if this necessarily means that they're expecting it, that Stack Exchange is expecting a ton of growth or or a ton of um, additional sort of problems problem people coming on the site. So uh, it seems like a bit overkill, and I wouldn't be surprised if the next year that we, there were fewer than three additional spots being open, just because I don't think that the three per year. Uh, necessarily matches with the growth trajectory that we're having on, on, on Ask Different. I assume the STV method will hold, will hold up with however many uh, candidates, however many choices you give them, although it pretty much disappears if it's only a, a single choice, a, a vote for the one-person system. Uh, yeah, well, if, if there's only one person, then I think that, um, you know, it just tallies all, all the... Um, the people that are voted, you know, the people vote for the, their first, their primary candidate. Mm-hmm. If someone has over 50%, they're automatically elected. Um, then if, if not, then I believe that the person that has the least number of those votes is removed. Then all of the votes, f- the, the second column, the, the, the second place votes uh, for the people that vo- initially voted for that person f- for their first place are then transferred over. And then the process is run again and again until someone has over 50% of the vote. Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly how that uh, how that compares to a, a standard voting system. I imagine that it's slightly fairer than the simple the, the, than the uh, the system used in in United States politics, where whoever has the um, the largest percentage, no matter you know if that's you know you, know, you got thirty five percent, and but that's better than everyone else, then I guess you win, which I think is an extremely flawed system. With this, you're able to sort of cast votes for people that you really want to be a moderator um, but you can sort of fall back f- for voting for for people that you um, were were are more okay with so if we are to compare this to united states politics just as an example suppose you really like the green party candidate so you vote for them as your first candidate 
but then you're like, well, if if they're not elected, then I want to vote for the Democratic candidate. And so you're able to sort of specify your backup candidates, whereas typically what will happen if you have two somewhat liberal candidates and a conservative candidate, then what happens is the vote is split among the liberal candidates and the conservative candidate sort of wins. It's kind of it's it's like a reverse of what you we would hope would happen where the majority of the votes are cast for the liberal candidates, but because it's split between the two of them and they can't, you know, they can't say one person can't say, well, I'm transferring all my votes to you. Then what happens is uh, the conservative candidate and ends up winning. Now, obviously I don't want to talk specifically about liberals or conservatives. I'm just sort of saying that in a multiple party system where it's a simple uh, whoever has the highest percentage wins, then you get weird situations like that where people say, oh, well, you're, if you're not voting Democrat or Republican, you're throwing your vote away. And I think that, yeah, that there are plenty of systems, including the one that, that's present on, on Stack Exchange, that are, are much better, even if there's only a single candidate being elected. And that's the story of the de facto two-party system. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. You know, it was kind of funny. When we were planning for this podcast, um, some, someone said something political. I think I, th- I think it might have been me. And I <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, let's add politics to the list. And understandably, uh, Jason and uh, Nathan weren't quite as uh, enthusiastic about that. <laughs> My political opinion means absolutely nothing. <laughs> right. Right. For three more years. Exactly. So next presidential election, you're good to go. Mm-hmm. Stack exchange politics, and that's the extent of it. Pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, we, you know, I, I wish luck for all of the candidates, and I look forward to working with the, the people that are uh, that end up being elected uh, very closely. Um, and I also hope, I really hope that the people that do not get elected still continue to participate and contribute, like Jason here. Thank you. I try. And who knows? You might you might be elected next year. I think if you do end up being elected, Jason, you're, you'll kind of be like the poster child of someone that, uh, you know, oh, they, they really tried the first year. They didn't make it, but they, you know, they really honed up. They really, you know, doubled down on on um, participating in the site, doing a podcast, doing the blog. And then I'm really hoping you'll get it this year. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. So in other Stack Exchange news, on February 6th, uh, Jeff Atwood announced on his Coding Horror blog that as of March 1st, he will no longer be part of Stack Exchange, which is... Uh, surprising. Yeah, it's... Well, it's I mean, it's not necessarily surprising because a few weeks ago, um, he, <laughs> he recently um, opened up his home to two new, <laughs> two new people. His wife was uh, pregnant with twins, and they were recently born. And so, you know, when you go from one child to three children you can sort of imagine that the uh the, the the time constraints and and your your personal priorities sort of radically shift and i i think jeff was fortunate enough to be in a position where he could sort of take that step back and and say you know i really want to be more active in raising you know the, the formative years the early years of, of raising my children and stuff and and i have the means to do that and I imagine it was probably a tough decision to walk away from Stack Exchange, which you know he's 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 poured his heart and soul into for the last nearly four years. But I I really think that uh, you know it was it was a courageous deci- decision, and um, I, I think it's definitely the right one for for him and his family. And I, I wish him the best, and 
I'm sure everyone else does as well. For without Jeff, there would be no Stack Overflow. There would be no Stack Exchange. We might be doing the Apple Experts podcast. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> well, well, we probably it would probably just you know something like this simply would not exist. You know, the the Stack Overflow community, the whole Stack Exchange thing, it just simply would not exist. Or if it did, it would be it would exist in a very different form because that's a lot of Stack Exchange and, and Stack Overflow. You know how it works, the kind of policies that are implemented. You know, I don't always agree with them, but you can sort of understand them, and they sort of they're 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 all of a piece. They they all sort of have um they usually are uh, consistent and 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 logically logically done. And I think that having one person behind a lot of that, Jeff Atwood, is really sort of what, what makes it seem like a very cohesive system. And I'm hoping that Stack Exchange will have sort of, will, will not lose the, the ability to have a, a strong leader, you know, uh, guiding product direction. But I, I, I certainly know for a fact that it's just not going to be the same without Jeff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's a blog post on uh, blog.stackoverflow.com simply titled Farewell. We'll, of course, link it in the show notes. And it talks about all of the organization changes, the new head of engineering, and uh, the Q&A quality individual. All of their names completely escaping me, and for that, I feel very, I feel, feel very terrible. Yeah, people uh, that, that are currently exist, um, you know, uh, current employees in Stack Exchange, just sort of, um, they've basically divided up uh, Jeff's role into a few roles. You know, one for like development, one for like community and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think it was actually it was very. Um, it's kind of unique to have the the same person in charge of the actual engineering of a thing being the same person that's actually uh, in, in charge of the 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 software aspects. You know, Q and A quality and stuff like that. That I, I you know, you, you sort of can draw a little bit of a parallel to um, to Apple, where Steve Jobs you know, was the, was where the buck stopped, you know, everything in that Apple made, everything that Apple did sort of had to pass through him. And I think in a lot of ways, there pretty much everything that happened with Stack Overflow and Stack Exchange had to pass through Jeff in some way. And I, I, I think that his, his design aesthetic in terms of what a, a Q&A site should be and, and how it should be run uh, are is really um, consistent and 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 effective. We all can see how effective uh, sites like Stack Overflow and Ask Different are, and it's possible that if you didn't if you didn't have things that are built into the engine that are that are designed to encourage or discourage certain kinds of behaviors, uh, or if you had certain behavioral policies, but they weren't really enforced by the engine that you might kind of get this this disconnect and 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 lack of cohesion and hopefully they will maintain <laughs> the um the the integrity of the uh of the, the of the process but that's something we're gonna have to uh just sort of wait and see on i guess yeah. designed by committee usually turns turns the process of development into a winding road because this person feels this way and gets the this amount of support, but this other person feels this different way and gets less or more support depending on the issue. So right. having having somebody to be able to not only design conceptually but design specifically around it does lead to a very a very solid experience all the way through. Yeah. So yeah, um, obviously. <laughs> 
again, um, this is kind of like when uh, Steve Jobs stepped down as CEO. It kind of feels a little bit like we're eulogizing him. And <laughs> I mean, with Steve Jobs, obviously it wasn't too premature to do that. But Jeff is certainly going to be around for quite a while to come. And I certainly know that <laughs> if there's some major change in Snack Exchange or whatever that he doesn't like, he probably will uh, will let the people in charge know. So uh, I don't necessarily think that uh, we're going to sort of necessarily see the last of Jeff's influence. I certainly hope not. You know, I've, I've had the pleasure of interacting with him for a few a few times. Well, I say pleasure. Sometimes, you know, sometimes, you know, you say, oh, we should really do this or they should change this. And Jeff comes along and says, I, I'm completely against this for reasons X, Y, and Z. And, and you say, oh, Jeff, why do you have to be so stubborn? Or, or why can't you understand, you know, this is something that, that, that should be done. But you can sort of respect his, his authority in that, in that, in that situation. And, uh, you can understand his, his, his desire to, shape the direction of the company and of the site so um so yeah we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna miss you jeff and um i certainly hope we haven't seen the last of you there is that parenting sack exchange site it's true maybe he'll be a prolific user there true yeah he'll get the he'll get the gold badge for the twins tag <laughs> that's right did you give you badges for the number for the children that you, that you get three children gold badge is it parenting.stackexchange.com it is uh still in beta I wonder if he's active. 1,930 reputation. Although he was last seen January 10th, which is uh, over a month ago by now. Just barely. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm sure he'll be around. You know, I mean, he he's created a system where he doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, behind the scenes all the time to continue, to continue adding value. I mean, he can still ask questions, answer questions, do all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I think that by now there's just so much stuff that's been sort of done in a certain way that it kind of has its own momentum. And um, I I would be very surprised if we saw any major deviation uh, in, in the near future. So it's it feels like it's been a long time, hasn't it? We actually recorded the uh, the, ep- the episode with Daniel on a Wednesday for release the following Monday. So it's been about two and a half weeks since we've talked. It's been a long time. Yeah. And it's actually been a pretty, uh, pretty busy two weeks in the, in the convention world and in the release world and just plenty of stuff going on this time. Definitely. Yeah. Macworld happened. Wish we could have gone to that. <laughs> actually, I think that might, that might've happened, uh, before the, the show with Daniel. Man, I, I've completely lost lost uh, continuity of time. I don't know, but if it, it feels like it's been a while since you know we've actually just done a, a just a regular show with the three of us because we did this, and then before that it was the one with uh, TJ Loma, and then before that it was the um, the best practices show. So it's really been um, since December, I think. Although wasn't the wasn't the December one with uh, with B Mike? Yeah, yeah. So it's been since somewhere no- around there. Since November, since we've done a show, uh, just the three of us, uh, as a as a typical show, uh, so it kind of feels like we have a little bit of a backlog of things that, you know, happened a long time ago, but we still want to talk about. And I think the first one is the uh, the mute switch thing. I realized that it was played to death three weeks ago or whatever, two weeks ago, but we did sort of have final thoughts that we wanted to sort of put in. And so basically, the premise of this is that there was someone that attended the Philharmonic Orchestra 
front row and apparently they had an alarm set on their iPhone and so they had, they had flicked the, the mute switch to mute on their phone, but because the alarm was set, the phone was making noise, and this person did not realize it was their phone. Apparently, they were given this phone, and uh, apparently, it was going on for like a minute or something, and then finally, the conductor stopped the orchestra till the guy shut off the alarm. And I imagine that must have been <laughs> that must have been pretty embarrassing for the guy. I, I I would be absolutely mortified if that happened to me. And so this kind of spawned a discussion of, so when you flick the mute switch on your phone, what should happen? What do people expect would happen? And so there are some people like Dan Benjamin that say, mute everything, you know, it should act like a hardware switch and cut all audio. And then there are some people that that say, well, there are benefits to having certain exceptions, like find my iPhone. For example, you can play a sound on your phone uh, even if the mute switch is turned on, stuff like that. This is exactly what I what I meant by saying that all of the volume controls on the side of iOS devices are just software switches. They're not hardware switches. My my phone previous to an iPhone was a Treo 700, and to the best of my recollection, when I turned that switch, no sound would emit whatsoever. And so my my routine then was that I had to make sure that my phone that the the speaker switch was back on so that the alarm would actually wake me up in the morning. Uh, and now that's, I, I just have to make sure the alarm is set and with an iPhone, it will just happen. It's, it, it's a little bit deeper than this because it's not just the system events that are of any bit of importance because there's another conversation that you have about apps that do not necessarily silence themselves when you flip the switch. I know there's a lot of games whose sole purpose is to play music you know, some kind of some kind of sound effect, some kind of music, some kind of uh, some kind of output. And so, if you turn the mute switch off, you'll mute any other notifications from taking it over, but you won't mute the game itself because the sole purpose of the game, the game really doesn't exist without a particular set of sound effects or music or what have you. The obvious the obvious uh, example being things like tap tap revenge and juke beat and anything else that is a music game. Uh, War is not the answer, Groove Coaster, etc. I'm sure you've played at least one of them. And shutting off every other notification on the phone is very helpful because then you don't detract from the music. And if there's any volume differences or anything like that, the list goes on. And so with, with third-party apps, that experience can be a little inconsistent because even if sound effects aren't important, a developer can still ignore the mute switch and and output sound whenever you have it shut off in which case they usually provide a speaker icon not always sometimes it's buried down in menus you know how it is i like the implementation of the ringer switch on the iphone and amusingly enough there was a long period of time on the ipad that i turned uh, after ios 4 came out i used the switch to be an orientation lock instead of being a similar kind of notification silence switch. I actually have to uh, say that the fact that third-party apps or even first-party apps can just simply ignore the position of the mute so I can switch and play audio is really annoying. I know people say, oh, but you told it to play audio. It's like, well, you know, I would like the ability to play a game without it playing any sound and i would turn your volume down but i would also like the ability to simply turn a switch to say all right now whatever whatever is going on i i i whatever i'm going to whatever i'm about to do 
do not play any sound for. Because typically, like if you're playing a video in, in the YouTube app, for example, you cannot adjust the audio for the, for the playback until the playback has started. Um, before the playback has started, all the, um, the volume button will do is adjust the ringer volume. And so you have to actually wait for the uh, oh, loading, loading, loading. Okay, it's starting. Got to got to turn down the the uh, the audio. And I just think that's that's such a stupid thing. You know, if I if I turn the the mute switch, if I if I flick the mute switch into the mute position, the phone should not make any noise unless it's in like an alert kind of situation. That's my opinion. Why would you watch a video without sound? If I just need to see the video, the the visuals, or if I, if I'm in a situation where I don't. You know, I, I don't, I really do not want the audio to be played. You know, you might be in a kind of a quiet situation or, or something like that. But that's not the majority case. And that's, that's the biggest, that, that's in my opinion, the biggest point about this whole argument is that when you open YouTube, you are doing it to entertainment, reference, whatever video you're doing. You're not looking to miss an aspect of the content. Well, for me, I would say that if, you start playing a video or start playing a game and there's no sound. You say, oh, I must have turned the, the mute switch and you just turn it on. No big deal. But if, for example, you want to not have any audio playing, it's an extremely uh, frustrating process where you have to wait for the, you know, wait for the game to load. It might be playing the, the loading music, da, 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 go to the settings, turn down the volume there. Or if it has settings, sometimes it doesn't. Or you're playing a video, you got to wait for it to load and then you got to turn down the, 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 uh, the audio there. Uh, it's just a, I would say that the, the benefit for being able to mute the, the audio for uh, videos and games before they start playing it uh, is more important than the inconvenience of play, starting to play a video or starting to play a game and realizing, oh, I guess the thing's on mute. There is another way to fix this too, and that's to shut off the volume buttons from controlling the ringer volume, period. I Is that again, possible? Just, yes, absolutely. I never want my ringer to be any other volume. That's just never been a use case for me. I if I don't want to hear the ringer is obviously I flip the switch. Otherwise, I want the ringer to be a constant volume. So if you go into settings and you hit sounds, then obviously you have all the controls for for vibration and the level of the ringer. But if you look under ringer and alerts in sounds, there is the volume slider and there is change with buttons. When that's on, the text says the volume of the ringer and alerts can be adjusted using the volume buttons. Uh, and that's, of course, at any time, as you're pointing out. You shut that off, and it says the volume of the ringer and alerts will not be affected by the volume buttons. And that turns the volume buttons into a purely system audio output control. I did not know about this, Jason, and you have just <laughs> you have just educated me. Thank you so much. And that, that's that when I learned about that, when I realized it, and I, I've been annoyed with the the inconsistency of volume two. There, there's still two other examples like apps that implement their own volume control that is in system audio. And so, if you turn it up, it only gets as loud as the system audio, and you turn it down, and it doesn't turn other things off. Uh, there are still apps out there that do that. Those are annoying. But then there's there's one last thing that's a little bit awkward, and that's independent volume levels of normal system audio output, headphone audio output, and th there's even like um, Siri audio output that's, that can be distinct from each of those, 
meaning um, Siri Siri response level in headphones is different than normal headphones, and Siri normal output is different from normal output levels. So there's still a little bit of ambiguity in things that only change when they're actually going on. But generally speaking, when you shut that ringer switch, when, when you change the uh, ringer controlled by buttons options off, a million problems disappear. And it really is a shame that it's on by default. I just think it's 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 so funny that the settings for uh, how loud something is on the iPhone or when it when it plays sound versus when it vibrates, it's a million times more complicated than than the corresponding settings on a Mac. On a Mac, you know, you have volume up, volume down, mute, and unmute. It's like that's it. You know, if if the thing's in mute, it doesn't play any audio. You know, if you go to YouTube.com and start playing a video or or iTunes and start playing a video, it doesn't play the audio if it's on mute. I think that that's kind of, you know, that is what the functionality on the iPhone should be out of the box. The difference is that a computer isn't a background object. Well, I think that, you know, if in, in alert situations, like if, if you have an alarm set, I can understand audio um, playing audio, not a problem. If you want to find your iPhone and, for example, it was left with the, the, the switch on, that's okay too. But simply allowing apps to ignore the setting of the mute switch just because they feel like it is pretty stupid. And it kind of reminds me of... Um, there's there's this thing recently where Path was discovered getting the address book of of uh, for everyone that that opened the app, uh, just getting the address book and shipping it all, all up to their servers. Uh, and this was only discovered when someone actually uh, sniffed the traffic on the, on the device uh, and found out. Whoa, you know, I didn't actually tell it to do anything, but as soon as I fired it up, there goes my address book and. This has been a big thing where Path, you know, initially said, "Oh well, just uh, just email us if you want us to remove the information." And the people were naturally were saying, um, "You're going to have to do better than that." And then a few days later, they came out with their "We are sorry" blog post where they they basically said that they um, they updated the app to explicitly ask whether or not you they can <laughs> ship up your entire address book, and that they deleted everything server side that they got before then. But I think that this is one of those cases where if something happens, like if 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 an application suddenly just, you know, grabs your entire address book and ships it up to their, their own servers or whatever, this is not necessarily the fault of the app. I mean, it is the fault of the app, but this is primarily Apple. Apple has created an, an ecosystem in the App Store of saying, look, you can download anything, you can run anything. If you don't want to run any, run it anymore, just delete it. You're fine. But now suddenly you, you're you're in a situation where uh, you see the, these potentially over you know hundreds of applications on your device, and you realize that every single one of these, even the kind of shady ones, have had full access to your address book and the ability to upload them the, to, to their servers for who knows how long. Certainly, Path, I imagine, is probably responsible with this information, but you've got apps like Facebook and Zynga, who I imagine, you know, especially like Facebook, I imagine if if Facebook had the opportunity to get everyone's address book, you know, whether or not they, the the, the person requested that they do that, uh, that they would, you know, Facebook's the kind of company that would do that. I mean, this was, you know, when I signed up for Facebook initially back in like 2005, one of the first things it was that it said was, "Oh, just put in your email address and your email password, and we will, you know, we'll find all your friends for you." 
Now, fortunately, I was smart back then and I said, there's no way I'm giving you my email password. But a lot of people did that. And if if you say, well, Facebook wouldn't wouldn't do that. Well, I say, you know, this has been part of Facebook's culture for a long time. I think it is pretty irresponsible to chastise Facebook for that because while they've made privacy snafus like Beacon and the public wall and everything like that, their level of egregious offense of private data has not been a long event or hasn't been like the news that's come out of it hasn't been especially devastating or anything of the sort as compared to something like our office manager at my last job signed up for some uh, I don't even remember. Unfortunately, I don't even remember what the service's name was, but it was one of those social networking with, a, you know, keep in touch with your friends after the fact. And she did do some kind of address book uploading. And so I can I can count, I believe, three instances where everybody in the company got this email to connect with your office manager. Those Those types of services that would whether they told you or not, those types of services that would just blast out this invitation to everybody, those are the ones that have done it wrong. Where Facebook's Facebook's automatic friend finding is interesting, but it's li- it's limited to being in the site. I've never ever gotten an email from Facebook that has just like unnerved me in the sense of, oh hey, it put two and two together in a way that I kind of rather it not have done. I think that you're sort of missing the point. I'm not saying that uh, Facebook has necessarily, you know, blasted everyone in your address book saying, hey, this person's ID for X service, you know, you should totally sign up and contact them. What I'm saying is that Facebook has been silently collecting this information for years and they have amassed a ton of information about people. It's it's scary to to know, like you sign into Facebook and it's like, you may know this person and you say, how would you even know that I know that person? I'm pretty sure I've never sent them an email. I'm pretty sure I've never called them. Um, but for some reason, like maybe they uploaded their their address book to Facebook, and my phone number was in there. And therefore, because I told you know Facebook my phone number you know one time four years ago, that suddenly oh well you must know this person. And it's not that they are necessarily abusing the information, but the fact that they are so meticulous about collecting it like for example you go to pretty much any site and there's that facebook like button on the site or they have facebook comments you go to TechCrunch, and they've got all those facebook comments well every time you visit a, a page like that if you're logged into facebook facebook knows because they're tracking you with a tracking cookie so Facebook knows where you've been on the internet. If you use those Facebook apps that do automatic, you know, posting, they, you know, you can you tell Facebook all the news articles you read, all the music that you listen to. Facebook is built for collecting this information. And it's only a matter of time before that information is cataloged and searched and and used for whatever, whether it's uh serving ads or whatever i mean it's, there's just tons of information that facebook has been collecting for the last however many years that they've been in operation this is part of their core functionality and now i have no information that whether or not facebook actually will the facebook app on the iphone will actually read your address book and send it to facebook without asking but i would that's like the kind of that's the kind of thing that i kind of expect that something like Facebook would do. And so I think that it's a, it's a huge failure of Apple for simply allowing this to happen. 
for simply assuming that the fact that I, I might want to download it and install this app means that I, I want to give the app and the app developer and the company that the app, you know, the app comes from and uh, the, the company that eventually acquires them and all that stuff access to all this personal information. And it's not even, it's not even just personal information about me. It's personal information about other people. Like people have entrusted me with this information about themselves and I'm just giving it out left and right on my iPhone. And this kind of makes me, again, I'm, you know, I, I, I was on a big drive yesterday and I, I was on a big five by five kick listening to, uh, you know, the talk show and, um, build and analyze. So, you know, I'm, I'm repeating some of the points that they mentioned there, but, uh, one point that I think John Gruber mentioned was if he feels like if he gives out this contact information, uh, he kind of feels like he left he, he he's let that person down. If, for example, like Path got Dan Benjamin's contact information, John feels like he let Dan down. And I feel the same way. I feel like I was entrusted with this information in my address book. And the fact that apparently Apple feels that any app that I install should naturally have access to all that information and naturally be able to upload that to their servers for storing in perpetuity is, I think not cool it is surprising i grant you that but i think the alternative is either there's two alternatives to this the first one is complete and total inflexibility and this feature not even existing some people some people would be fine with that some people wouldn't and that that would just be a different situation but the other alternative to this which i i would hope that nobody wishes for is granular extensive obnoxious permission approvals not entirely unlike windows uac well that that point has been made and i think that a a one-time per app does you know should do you want this app to have this information or not similar to location is i think acceptable you know if i if i tell ios that yes i want path to access my address book and then path wants to do it again next week and i said it was okay last week i think it's okay for it to do it again but you know if i fire up the app and i and it says path wants to access your location path wants to access your address book i would say i i have not had any opportunity to evaluate this app i don't know anything about this app why is it asking why is it looking for all this information up front and what this would do is if an app has these uh, tons of these boxes that pop up upon initial launch it it looks really bad for the app and a lot of people would say no 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 i i don't want anything to do with this app if it's asking for tons of the stuff and so what this would do is developers of legitimate apps <laughs> would eventually hide uh, the trigger for all this behind some sort of call. So instead of wanting to know your location immediately, maybe when you want to post something, it, it tries to get your location. Or when you want to try to find your friends, it says, hey, this app wants to access your address book or something like that. Uh, I, I think that, yes, this this is sort of reminiscent of those Windows UAC things where it's just like, oh, this app needs administrative access to install. Eh, okay, meh, meh, meh. Because every app needed administrative access to install. But I think if there's just a few things that require the user to explicitly allow the app to access stuff, that it'll still it'll still carry some weight. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, I would be okay if every other user just was like, okay, 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 okay. As long as I have the, the option to opt out of this stuff, you know, I'm smart enough to see a pop-up that says, Hey, this per- this app wants to access your location. It's like, huh? And if I open a game that asks for a notification 
privileges. I always say no because the only notifications I've ever gotten from a non-social game are, hey, we have a new game out, come buy it. Or, um, oh, definitely. Or, or something like there's an update available, that sort of thing that I don't want it to tell me because it's effectively spam. And I really appreciate the ability to just shut that off. And if I, if the app can prove to me that it actually has a good reason for notifying me of something, then I can go and turn on notifications and in uh, preferences and it won't break anything. But I, I agree that something like that for, for contact info and any other entitlements that the app wants to request would be useful. And when you're, when you're installing a, a windows app or a browser extension, it does give you that list of here's what it wants. And that is annoying, but as long as it's not every single app is asking for this stuff, as long as they don't crank it up so much that even little things like it wants access to the camera, it wants access to the, um, I don't know the, what else is, I, anyway, it wants access to the, the camera. Like the photos or stuff like that. Yeah, something like that. Something that is hard to abuse or is not has not been abused so far. Then as long as the entitlements don't become spam then I think it would be okay and better than cutting it off or enabling it for everyone. I don't so much have a problem necessarily with an app accessing all this stuff on my phone. It's when it's transmitting it to a third, you know, the, the, a third party, you know, I don't care if I download the sleaziest, you know, GPS app and I don't care necessarily if it asks me whether or not it can access my location as long as my location is not broadcast in any capacity. I actually started reading a book called the Ruby programming language. Fantastic book trying to pick up Ruby. And one of the things that it sort of briefly mentions is that every object can have a property called taint. And what this means is that, so if you're, if you're reading input, like input from a file, input from a user, whatever you can mark, the strings or or objects that it was read into as tainted. And then what you do is anytime you try to, I don't know, write, like if you have a, a database class and you, you, you send something through the database to, to write it, uh, some database classes will say, Oh, I can't write this because this, this object is tainted or this string is tainted. And so what you have to do is you actually have to provide, like you have to manually quote unquote untaint it. And what I would think is technically possible would be to provide to have applications automatically provide have access to my location my address book my photos whatever but the memory that it's read into cannot then be sent over the network so you know you have some sort of routine that you know, that's trying to 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 read the, um, the data structures in memory and, and and send them over over the network. Um, the the low level operations simply would not allow it, that to happen. And I think that would probably be fine for users who care about privacy and understand it. But there is always the user who opens an app that's I don't they open Yelp or something and it figures out where they are and shows it on a map and they get all freaked out and they say, well, it didn't ask me if it wanted to use that. And it doesn't, you're right that it doesn't matter as long as it's not putting the information somewhere public or, or right. to the company. But there is still the scared user problem. And I'm not, I, I'm not sure how much of the existing location and notifications privacy settings are based on that. I imagine that's a much stronger pressure on Apple than the power user, I want fine-grained control over this because I actually care what happens 
So first of all, I wanted to say that by all means, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be some kind of restrictions put on address book data. The fact that there isn't is pretty surprising because that is private data, locations, contact information, relationships. And um, I've used LinkedIn recently and LinkedIn's ability to sync all of your contacts and put little specific identifiers in address book contacts such that when you tap on it, it brings their information up in LinkedIn is really handy. So getting getting all of that by extension that could theoretically lead to full employment history and everything else, yeah, it's a bit much to be able to just say, oh, I want that. Okay, it's mine. So I agree that the address book should be more protected than it is. A private data specific like that should absolutely be protect, protected to the same extent the location and anything else is. I disagree that it should be easy to get it to the app and hard to send it over the network. It should not be easy to get into the app, period. Because as soon as it's in there, God only knows what way they can find to kind of like store it, defer it. I, I, I mean, airfoil. Well, that's, that's the thing. Um, you would have to make sure that that process is airtight. If they're like writing it to like a loopback buffer or, oh, we're just going to write it to this empty portion of the, of the display thing and we're just going to read that back and send it over the network. I mean, it has to be like an, a, an airtight thing. But so why I'm give s- them that chance? Just don't let that app don't let that app have the data it wants without your permission in the first place. It, it, I, I, the part I disagree with is the fact that it should be a slightly lower barrier to get into the app. No, it should not get into the app, period. And the network, if you, if you allow it, it should be able to do within reason anything it wants to do with it, but it should not be able to be that easy to get in there in the first place. It shouldn't, it shouldn't just be something that it can request and have instant access to. You, you seem to be arguing against – you seem to be arguing for the very thing you were arguing against earlier. I, I mean I, – I, I was saying that – I was saying more based off the reaction that people, people that argue for permission granularity – and on on a bunch of private data, there needs to be a point where it gets cut off. But private data, like an address book, is one of those things that I don't think there is any argument against locking it down more more heavily, like location data and phone access and anything like that. But to say that to say that it should be easy, your argument was that it should be easy for the data to get into the app, but it should be very strict on when it could actually send it out. Right. I completely disagree with that. Why? Assume that the process works perfectly. Why is that a problem? Because I will never, ever make that assumption. Because it will never, <laughs> ever be true. Um, it certainly can be in certain, in, in very limited situations. Like, you know, you could read something into a data structure and then that would like be like a, in a completely different segment of memory that only has access to very limited functionality. And then, you know, it would almost you, like separate threads or something like that. I mean, this, this, this kind of separation of memory and stuff has been solved in Unix for decades. And it works pretty darn well. Now, obviously, there are the occasional security problems and, and, um, and, and leaks and stuff like that. But it works pretty darn well. And yes, may, in theory, this kind of thing could happen. But it's one of those things where it would, it would take it from being something that every single app does <laughs> to something that would only happen like, you know, one time out of a million, 10 million. It would be truly exceptional if something we were able to break this in any meaningful way. It's a computer science problem that, uh, that has a solution. Yes, it does. And, and I think call it inexperience, call it uh, lack of lack of knowledge on the particular subject, but 
separating an app's functions away from itself. There's just there's just something in the details that you're providing that does not sound right to me, and that that could be my own failing. But well, think about how all this um, the sandboxing works on on iOS and Lion. It works under the under the same principle. Where, it would, like for example, QuickTime, it has a separate process that is used for decoding the QuickTime thing, and another for actually displaying it on the screen. Uh, and this is done because you know if a vulnerability is found in the decoding of the of the thing, then it's completely isolated and separated from everything else, and it cannot affect any other aspect of the system. You know, you do the same thing with your address book data. You have a separate sandbox thing that can only access your address book data, and you can, and it sort of sits between the application and the uh, like the and, the and the screen basically. And that part's fine, but the argument you were making was th- the way that I understood the argument was that, and if an app requests address book data and gets it, and it's in the app, that's fine. But the preventing it from actually going from phoning home that data. And what what I perhaps what I assumed incorrectly was that I, I don't know if you if I should have taken that to mean to completely lock the app away from networking access, but it was starting to sound to me like you were saying lock the app lock the app out from taking that data and sending it, but allow other network traffic normally. Right, that's what I'm saying. That doesn't make sense to me. Well, imagine you have two processes. You know, one. And, well, I'm not saying I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm just saying. If I'm going to let an app access the network, I'm going to let it access the network. And you you were pointing out a lot of different ways where it can circumvent its own security locks and be able to get the data back in in a roundabout kind of way and then use the general network access privileges to be able to send it out. And I'm just saying, why why jump through these hoops and not just prevent it in the first place. I if, if I don't trust an app in any aspect, I don't want data going into it in the first place. I don't want it to be able to retain the data for a long time and down the road when things change, it finds a way to send it out. I don't want the data in the app in the first place, period. If I'm not going to trust an app, but I'm not going to delete it for some reason, uh, there there is going to be very specific data that the app is not going to have access to in the first place, period. It's not going to exist in its in its memory space or in its in its uh, sandboxed disk storage, and then uh, it, it has to fight to get it out via network access. No, it's not going to go into the app in the first place. Period. I'm saying that for a lot of well, maybe not for a lot, but for some situations where you might need to access the address book or your the person's location or the calendar or whatever. For like for example, there's a great there's a great calendar replacement on iOS called Agenda that just taps into your iCal and shows you all the stuff. Now, Agenda doesn't need to send anything over the network. It doesn't need to save any files. It just needs to tap into the address book. And uh, as long as that's all it's doing, why does it need to why does it need to ask me? Well, it doesn't ask me because that's, that's not there in iOS. But say, for example, they do add that in the future. It would not need to ask me to access my address book. It just could. Now, if I pop, if if I open the app and it said, this app wants to access your address book, and I know that it doesn't need to ask me that unless it's actually sending it to the server, I say, why does this app need to send it to, to a third party? So what I'm talking about is making the, the alerts um, mean more and... I'm not. I'm not talking about something popping up every single time. You seem to be focused on the on these tiny little uh, implementation details. I, I, I just think that you know you're not. 
either you don't fully understand what I'm talking about or you, you simply don't think that it can exist. I think jailbreaking has just gone to your head. I, <laughs> well, actually, jailbreaking is interesting because, you know, once you do that, sort of everything goes out the window. Jailbroken apps can access a lot more. And so I prefer to stay in Apple Sandbox. Uh, I actually only jailbroke to install this really awesome theme, actually. Uh, it's called Jakku. It's um, actually by a, um, an Ask Different user, CK Sum. So it, it's really, it was really nice. Uh, I followed him on Twitter and I saw, <laughs> I kept seeing him retweet people saying, oh, I love, I love Jakku. I love Jakku. And so I'm like, all right, I'll check it out. So I, um, Jailbreak my iPhone 4, bought it. It's like three bucks in the Cydia store, and uh, it's pretty good. Did your call your iPhone performance problems? Did they start before or after the jailbreak? I'm just curious if that's. Oh, it's always been, it's always been an issue. Um, okay. Actually, um, the <laughs> so Jacku is a winterboard theme, and I noticed that springboard performance was significantly worse. You know, with winterboard installed. So I'm kind of going back and forth on whether or not I'm actually going to keep the theme, not because the theme is bad, but because Winterboard is kind of bad. Uh, but no, um, my main my main problem that I'm having with iOS five on my iPhone four is that there's just a lot of a lot of little delays. Uh, like for example, I, I, I want to listen to podcasts using Instacast. and so I have my my headphones plugged in and I hit the button to play the music or play the podcast and then it's like four or five seconds and then either it starts or it doesn't or it starts and stops i think jason you've had kind of a similar problem right yeah um there is definitely a bug in ios 5 and by and still in 501 that has to do with remote controls when you're not actually in the app when the app that's playing music isn't actually in the foreground i've had issues where i'll be listening to music and i'll pause it and do something else for 30 minutes or an hour, whether that means actually using the phone or just li- just setting it aside for that long. And I press the button or I call up the home button media controls, any of that kind of thing, and I hit play again. And um, some third-party apps will respond very poorly and take much longer than they need to. Usually network-based stuff like Instacast, like you said, I've had this problem with. Digitally Imported has had this problem. But the most frustrating one is that even with local media using the music app, you hit play on it again, and it just like... The stream stream of audio is just like corrupted. It skips, it stutters, it repeats, and it's just obnoxious until you actually go into the music player app and then it suddenly decides to smooth out and play normally again. Yeah. My, my guess for this is that, um, so something in the operating system says play the audio and then the audio, uh, hardware just goes through the buffer that it has and just, you know, goes from one end to another, just playing the audio that it has in there. And if the process that's actually trying to play the audio is not able to put the audio in there that, you know, before the audio hardware it reads it, then you get that kind of corruption where, you know, you hear stutter, da, 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 da. And that's because it's just the audio hardware just keeps reading the same information from the audio buffer. Um, and I think that this, this may actually be kind of a, a little bit of a, a Unix problem. I noticed that when I upgraded to iOS 5, uh, I use a program called iStat. And the number of processes running on even just a freshly restarted iPhone, uh, like more than doubled between iOS four and iOS five, and I was just I was just shocked by that. And I, I think it's probably 
some sort of resource contention or 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 something just you know the process is not getting the CPU time it needs uh, until it's actually foregrounded to actually play play audio smoothly after it's been taken out of memory initially, which is why the the point of waiting at least half an hour or something like that, or possibly doing something else with the phone is a, it's a very key component of this problem when you start it back up. Cause if, right. if you're away for just like five minutes, it's usually just fine. But as soon as uh, things have had their chance to, to settle in and page memory in and out and anything like that is when, when the problem really starts to crop up regularly. Yeah. I have, I've seriously considered downgrading to iOS four. I'm not sure what's involved. And I'm not sure that, you know, if there, there'll be like baseband issues or something like that, but I've seriously considered it. Uh, the only thing I'll really miss is iCloud. All right. So our question of the week this week is, how do you prepare your Mac for the possibility of being stolen? This was asked by uh, Dan Surfrider on February 1st. And he goes, I'm using the great Prey, uh, the great application Prey, which hopefully has never has to get used, but just in case I want to be prepared. So basically, I have a, a request for a password after sleep screensaver enabled, but that would be that would probably lead the thief into the direction of reinstalling uh, the OS 10. All my data would be gone and Prey would be useless. Therefore, I created some other users without a password so the thief can use the Mac anyway and herewith send some, me some signals that I can track his location and all that good stuff. My problem basically is that he can still see some applications which I can restrict, but the user will see them anyway and get the idea that they aren't full users, so the thief might have the idea to reinstall. I basically want my thief to be as comfortable in my OS ten as possible without giving anything away. What do you guys do? How do you prepare your Mac for use with Prey? So I think this is sort of two things. You know, how do you prepare your Mac for the possibility of being stolen? Um, sort of generally and is is there a way to make sure that the thief simply doesn't wipe your Mac uh, as soon as he gets it? It's a hard question to answer because my my honest opinion is that it, it depends nothing on you and it depends completely on the other person. De- depending on what they want it for, if they want it to use it, then they probably won't be as drastic. But if they want it to, one, if they know what they're doing, and two, if they're selling it, you know, just just to to make a buck or something like that, they could either they could either be very smart and boot it into recovery and wipe the local contents, or not the thief, but the person who's complicit in the act is going to get burned if they don't if they don't take any of these measures too having said that a little bit of precaution is never a bad thing and just the question by itself uh, about making dummy users that they can just log directly into that's genius i would never have thought of something like that i think one it's it's kind of a harder harder stop but if you set a firmware password you can, you can certainly get around it still but that means that the the thief can't boot to a cd or the recovery partition without a password meaning that they can't reinstall the operating system without either getting around the firmware password or knowing the password. And that's, that's going to deter most people. Does it, is that going to give Prey enough of a chance to do its work and help you get your computer back? It depends on how much they continue using it with the accounts that you've left or if they just d- abandon it. Yeah, it's a hard question because I, don't, I really don't like to think about, the, you know, if my Mac gets stolen. It's, you know, not a, not a comfortable thought to have. The idea of my uh, my poor defenseless computer, you know, in someone else's clutches, it's too much to bear. But yeah, the, the, the whole idea of using some sort of tracking program like Prey and providing a at least a functional OS X environment for the, for the thief to use 
so that they don't completely re- remove prey from the system is actually a pretty good idea. Another thing to do, sort of multiple combinations, is to also turn on, uh, you know, find my Mac. This is an, an iCloud thing, and if your if your Mac is is on like a Wi-Fi network somewhere, uh, and that Wi-Fi network has been geolocated then you can log into iCloud.com and see where your computer is, at least approximately. So that might help in, in, in terms of actually recovering your computer. Now, the, the, the flip side of this is that, you know, do you want to get your computer back or do you want your data to be secure? Because these, these things are kind of mutually exclusive. If you want your data to be secure, you want to make sure that uh, you have FileVault turned on on the, on the system and that only that you have the, the minimum number of user accounts and, and no users without any passwords. Um, because if the, if you do have a user without a password, then, then the file vault is useless. You can just log in with the user with, with the password, uh, without the password and just, uh, I don't know if, uh, I mean, there, there, there might be ways to sort of, you know, break out, but there's certainly, you're certainly 99% of the way there. You know, you're already decrypting the uh, the hard drive. And so it's just a matter of getting at the administrative accounts for all your information. Yeah, and since it's become whole disk encryption and not just home directory encryption. Right. I mean, I've actually heard people say, well, why can't I have both? Why can't I have full disk encryption so that... I can, you know, I, I can encrypt the entire disk, um, but why can't I also have individual user um, file vaults so that if the OS X is compromised in some capacity that you're still secured with your other user accounts? That's a good question. I'm not sure. I wasn't a huge fan <laughs> of the old uh, file vault system, but I, I guess some people still want it. I don't know. Something that doesn't have, it's not something that has a completely definitive answer. Um, there is a, there's a myriad of basically personal logging software like keyboard loggers and uh, uh, discrete webcam shots and that kind of thing. Uh, I know, I don't, I don't know their names, but I know I've seen at least two different products in the Apple store that the LoJack style, the, like this Prey project uh, application that serve the purpose of recovery by using every method necessary, gathering media, sending it to a server, locating itself, doing whatever it can to actually hop on a network and send, and phone home so that we can actually figure out, so that you can actually figure out what happened to it. And that is exactly as you said, it does delve even deeper. If you're not as concerned about losing the hardware, but the data is important, then you want to put priority in uh, solidifying and encrypting and making sure that everything is locked down in a in a manner that would be very difficult to recover. Uh, where if the the hardware is the most important thing, then you probably want to invest in K locks and backpacks, uh, rough backpacks, and then you obviously have to be the type of person to be very responsible and aware of your goods, uh, whether no matter where they are on you back at home or in a class or anything else of the sort. Right. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> If you're concerned about your computer getting stolen, the primary thing is try to make sure it doesn't get stolen. <laughs> yeah. The second is preparing for the case that it does get stolen. To get your so, data back and prevent it from anybody else, prevent yeah, it from falling into yeah. anybody else's hands. I almost think that uh, what you should do is, you know, if you're really concerned about both, what you could do is you can have some sort of online backup service and then just back up everything. And then, you know, if you lose your computer and you've got the, the full file vault on, 
yes, you lose the physical hardware, but then you can just um, restore everything from the online backup. So our app of the week this week is TweetBot. This is a Twitter application that I switched to after Twitter massively botched their iOS app. Uh, and I've been really happy with it. Uh, it I, I went into a little bit, de- a little bit of detail on the show with uh, Mike Bradshaw, but it's um, it's worth noting that they recently uh, released uh, their version 2.0 of the app, and this actually has a few uh, a few interesting features and uh, a few fixes to some kind of um, annoying functionality. First off. It used to be that if if there was a link in a tweet and you, you wanted to, to click on it, you had to tap the tweet and then that would like highlight it and then you could tap the link. Now you can just tap the link. I'm, I'm glad they fixed that. That was really annoying. Uh, second, you, you can now see the images in line and you can just tap the image directly to see images because a lot of people post images on Twitter. just makes it easier to sort of see like a thumbnail of what it is and, and just go right to it. So I, I like that. Oh, and, all, and, and, and it may not be new in tweetbot 2.0 but it's certainly new for me you can use cloudly um or cloud app i'm not sure yeah i'm sure what it's called uh for url shortening uh image upload video upload text upload i kind of like using that because it's kind of a one-stop shop for everything you know i don't have to uh use link shortening with like bitly or whatever and then use another thing for videos and another thing for images i just use that and you know if i log into um the, the cloud app uh website I can just see everything there and, you know, see how many times things have been viewed. So that's pretty handy. I, I wish that there was a desktop app that supported that much as well. Uh, I, I really wish there was a Mac app version uh, of TweetBot because I would certainly buy that in a heartbeat. Well, the theory for that is that you just use Cloud App itself. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could always just upload it to Cloud App and then post the link in, in the Twitter app. But yeah, I, I, I like the you know the the theory of being able to just drag stuff directly to the Twitter app and just have it uh, have it go up and uh, and use Cloudly automatically. And speaking of Tweetbot for other platforms, it's now available for the iPad. This has been hugely wanted and anticipated, and and Tapbots has been uh, very si- had been very silent uh, on whether or not this was even going on. Uh, but uh, a few days ago, they actually released a version for the iPad, and it, it looks pretty amazing. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have an iPad, so I can't test it out. Uh, and Jason doesn't use Twitter anymore. And so unfortunately, he, I've stopped using Twitter, so he can't test it out. But um, from well, I every, could, I just don't. Well, yeah, yeah. From, but from everything I've seen online, uh, the uh, the Tweetbot for iPad is as good as the Tweetbot for. Uh, for the iPhone, and plus they both use TweetMarker, so they, you know, if you start reading on your iPhone, and you you could easily switch to your iPads, you know, pick right pick up right where you left off. Something that was just not possible with the the native versions of Twitter for those platforms back when they were actually still kind of good. So very very good, and uh, I'm if I ever do get an an, an iPad, TweetBot for iPad is going to be on my list of things. Dubai. It's pretty interesting when a company that makes a, in my opinion, a very principal, a, a very popular third-party Twitter app doesn't have an iPad version. Here we are just inside two years after the introduction, and they finally have one for it. You know, it, it, it's, I respect and appreciate people that take the time to make it unique and not just everything scaled up or 
Because what's the difference between an app that's scaled up versus something that's iPhone compatibility and you just tap the 1X, 2X? So it's always nice when they put in the effort and actually do this kind of thing. It's just surprising that it's taken this long to me. Yeah, they really have a um, laser-like focus on on making sure that every single pixel is absolutely perfect and they won't release it until it is. And, and I, I respect that, but also it's kind of annoying when you're right. You know, when if for example you bought an iPad two years ago, you said this is going to be awesome. In six months, all the all my favorite apps on the iPhone are going to be on the iPad as well. And then you know, two years later, you're still waiting for uh, the Tweetbot version. Uh, although I don't, I think I think Tweetbot was only released maybe it was a little over a year ago. I don't think it's been out super long. But still, I mean, over a year is still kind of long between yeah. an iPad, iPhone version and an iPad version. And then there's all of the apps that make you rebuy the iPad version, which is understandable, but always unfortunate, like Instacast and Beehive. And yeah. Yeah, I, I hate that. I mean, I, I, I intellectually, I realize why developers have to do that, but it just kind of feels almost like they're... A that they're nickel and diming you, and B because they're separate apps. You know you can't. It's um. You probably can't restore like an iPad to an iPhone or vice versa, right? Can you? No, you cannot use an iPhone backup to be restored to an All iPhone. Right. Well, I guess it doesn't really matter. But like for you know for for like an iPod Touch, you can always restore to an iPhone or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I guess that doesn't matter. But I I just like the idea that you know it's a universal app and and you can. You know, you can download the same app on either platform, and the fact that you know, the, tons of tons of apps do this. Reader, yeah, bot. reader. That's that's <laughs> another big one in our list, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe if Apple supported, uh, you know, like in, in, an in-app purchase to an upgrade to a, a Plus app, you know, maybe they might do that. I don't know. Just as long as they don't call it HD. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that naming scheme is so worthless, especially considering that the that the, the iPhone Retina uh, w- when the Retina feature came out, that just kind of like blew the iPad's uh, HD qualifier out of the water. Oh, definitely. Although it's possible that the iPad might regain <laughs> the title soon. Uh, maybe we'll be talking about that in another month or two. I would love to talk about that. Huh. So, Tweetbot by Tapbots, uh, three, two, three dollars in the App Store. I think it's three dollars now. Three dollars, which for, for both the iPhone version and the iPad version. So it's three dollars for each version. <laughs> uh, since I didn't actually mention it, it, it's kind of funny. Twitter is still the the social network, as it were, that I use most frequently. But the problem is that I use it for writing and broadcasting and nothing else. I use Rin, as I've previously talked about, on the desktop in order to post. And I have InstaTweet on my iPhone and my iPad in order to do the same thing. Just get a post out there whenever whenever something strikes my fancy. Uh, I do have Echo Phone installed on everything, and I use it. I am a pro user so that uh, notifications are... Uh, notifications, push notifications come to iOS devices and uh, read syncing happens. But I just, I'm one of those people where I just followed way too many people, way, way too many broadcasters. So there's just so much stuff in my stream that's actually not really relevant to me. Uh, my, my followed outweighs my followers by like three or four times. And I need to sit down and clean all of that up. And, uh, 
kind of sucks because you have to you can't do it until you see them in your timeline and considering that i still actually like reading their stuff it's hard to actually decide to unfollow them as relevant as it may be as opposed to just being interesting yeah i um i'm contemplating writing a script that will just get like the last i don't know five thousand tweets or whatever in my timeline and sort them by how many were by specific people so you know if i see that you know robert scoble has tweeted you know you know 500 times out of the last 5,000 tweets and and the next person has tweeted like 20 times i'll say well maybe robert scoble you know i like you i really do but i just i can't follow you anymore because you're destroying twitter for me yeah so if i if i do end up writing that script i'll share it with you (laughs) yeah and it's and it's things that are pretty obvious i follow vg 24 7 a video game news news page that's always interesting but i just don't keep up enough kind of the same kind of thing goes for the playstation network and even some podcast outlets that I just haven't been able to listen to regularly anymore. And funny enough, uh, that that's the reason why I'm, as far as reading, I'm on Facebook a heck of a lot more because that's just people I actually know. And so the, the noise level is significantly different. It's It's not just things that are, oh yeah, interesting. It's actually relevant to me because they're people I will actually be interacting with. <laughs> But Facebook's evil, Jason. Mm-mm. Nope. Can be. And everybody has that potential, kind of like Google. Uh, it certainly can be, but it's well. When the, it's when not. The, well, I I argue that they already are. But if they do, by your standards, turn evil, they have, will have tons of information about you. Yeah, and Google will do the same thing to me, especially with everybody that I've encircled. Yeah, I and, um, uh, I, I said back when Google announced Plus that I was reevaluating Google's relationship to you know my 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 personal information and i on the um five by five kind of critical specials that there was uh yesterday instead of hypercritical merlin and marco were talking about switching from gmail to fast mail and that's kind of i've had that kicking around in the back of my head you know uh switching from gmail to just a simply simply a hosted imap account somewhere and the prices are pretty reasonable you can get like the deluxe you know 10 gigabyte you know super everything plan for 40 dollars a year from Fastmail. i wonder if somebody's built some kind of an email type of service uh basically a front end on front of uh aws that could alleviate a lot of that too every day i'm expecting amazon to come out with some sort of hosted email solution for for companies because uh, I'm sure there are tons that was that say we don't want to do Exchange because that's super expensive, and we don't want to do Google because they're super creepy. Where's our alternative? And it's just a market that's not particularly served super well. Everything, every, everything, email has become a service that coalesces that that integrates a lot of different things that you don't care about when you just want to be able to send a message relatively well universally at this point when you just want to be able to send and receive messages and you don't want any other flair email has definitely become something else in that arena and it'd be nice to go back to just something something as prolific as a phone number and massively less intrusive yeah and and if you if you sort of cut the gmail tie then it's easier to sort of cut the other google ties to say well i can probably use DuckDuckGo for search and i could probably use i don't know big maps and and one by one, it just, you, you, 
it becomes easier to sort of extricate Google from your life. But if if you do use Gmail as your primary email, uh, which I do, you know, you, you are sort of joined to the hip, which is, you know, for good or bad. I mean, Google... Google is, I mean, people for people are saying, are saying yeah, they're, they're turning kind of evil. And, and they certainly do have tons of information. I mean, we, we I was talking about, you know, Facebook's little, um, pl- like, um, thumbs up, I like this, whatever. I don't even know what they call it that they put on, on other websites and how that, that enables them to track you. But Google... <laughs> Google runs Google Analytics. I mean, literally, this is this is an analytics engine that they're providing, you know, for free for webmasters that nearly every site of any size will use. And so Google <laughs> Google has massive information um, uh, when you visit those sites. Yeah. And plus ones for Google Plus are only adding. Yeah, and and people in Google Ads, and I mean, Google has tons of information about you. But I'm actually I'm. Yeah, I would rather let Google have that information than let a company like Facebook that have that information because uh, Google has at least shown a modicum of respect for personal privacy. Even if they're going to be modifying your search terms, it's not necessarily indicative that they're going to start suddenly opening up all this personal information to your friends on Google+, Plus. So, which is good. I mean... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with that being said, this has been the Ask a Different Podcast. If you're not scared of stack exchanges tracking and analytics, you can find our show in most podcast apps by searching for Ask Different Podcast. The direct RSS link and show notes for this and all of our episodes are at apple.blogoverflow.com. Uh, you can reach the three of us anywhere on Ask Different or by emailing us at podcast at askdifferent.net. Thanks for listening.